0: jaguar enthusiasts club podcast this week one of jaguar's most exciting prototypes the xk180 and how to build one JECPodcast.com hello and welcome to another jaguar Enthusiasts club podcast wayne scott with you hope you're keeping well hope you've had your jag out in all of this amazing weather well that kind of came to an end here in the UK this week but never mind we had a lovely run of sunshine so I hope you've enjoyed it and we don't mind the rain because it means it's getting it all out of its system ready for the 4th of July just two weeks to go now until we all get together at last for the big event we've all been waiting for the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage the 4th of July. We're of course celebrating 60 years of the e-type and the mark 10 we're celebrating 25 years since the xk8 was launched 15 since the x150 and 20 years of the modern classic that is the jaguar x-type plus the fact that we're all celebrating the fact we're allowed out and able to share our jaguar passion at an event at last so i can't wait to see you all there i'll be hosting the live stage at the summer jaguar festival where we're going to be bringing some of the interviews that we've had on this podcast including peter leak and kevin mcleod from channel 4's grand designs to you in an open air audience we'll also have sir john egan amazing and our own technical wizard david marks plus many many more people on the live stage and as part of our commentary throughout the summer jaguar festival we'll be bringing the podcast to you live at Bista heritage looking forward to it can't wait it's going to be really good of course we recognize that we're not yet free from all the covid regulations all of that has been put back four weeks we're all aware of that but the organizers of the event will ensure of course that you are safe throughout the day it's all been designed with your safety in mind to give you peace of mind so that you can enjoy the cars and being with each other at Bicester Heritage so we've got a system in place to make sure there's no overcrowding especially in the trade hall we've got hand sanitizing stations and people will be well distanced to make sure that you've got room around you for your safety what it does mean though of course is that it has to be pre-book only there will be no tickets available on the gate so please don't miss out you've got to be there if you're a jag fan you'll kick yourself for missing it honestly you will so make sure you get your tickets now jec.org.uk forward slash festival is the place to get them from and there's still time wednesday the 30th of june is the deadline for booking don't miss out don't miss the event but please don't turn up unless you've got a ticket there will be none on the gate it's all part of the restrictions that we have to adhere to for your safety tom robinson's been working hard on his xjr supercharged race car and we'll be finding out how to build that xk 180 very shortly but first richard west joins me for the hall of fame motorsport heroes with richard west's hall of fame Well, on this week's Hall of Fame, we're featuring not only an ex-TWR man, but also an ex-president of the BRDC. In his day, he was a very, very tough competitor.
1: Very much indeed, Wayne. We're talking about none other, of course, than Derek Warwick, and as you rightfully say, yet another man who went through the uh, TWR Jaguar stables and also many other forms of motor racing. uh, Derek was born in 1954 uh, and these days I think Jersey is his home but he raced for many years in Formula One which we'll come to later and in fact although he collected four podiums in that time he never did win a Grand Prix and a a very well-renowned journalist at the time said probably one of the greatest Grand Prix drivers that never managed to win a race but a very talented individual indeed
0: well you often hear about racing drivers starting in the now very glamorous world of karting uh or they start in rallying or they come up as some of the guys in the 50s and 60s did through sort of auto tests and things like that but quite surprisingly i always thought because he was a very refined Driver when he was in sports cars and especially for TWR Jaguar, he actually started in stock cars, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he did. I used to go and watch him when I was a young lad at Aldershot Stadium. I mean, he, he he won the Superstock, and he was only sixteen at the time. And then he went on to win the World Championships at Wimbledon in 1973. And of course, motor racing ran in the family. His his younger brother Paul also raced, but he started off in Superstocks as well and moved to Formula Three thousand. Very tragically. Uh, was killed in an accident. You know, it affected Derek greatly at the time, but his tenacity and his strength shone through. And uh, he continued to race successfully for a number of years after that tragic accident Mm -hmm. that befell his brother. Derek is an incredibly determined individual, and he's got a a very good business brain on him as well. And he's one of those guys, you know, you make your mind up to do something, and and he did it. And uh, as you rightfully say, he won the 1978 British Formula 3 Championship And he then transferred across to Formula One with the fledgling Tolman team in in 1981. Uh, Again, a team known well to the broadcast listeners because indeed that's where Ayrton Senna got his first Formula One drive as well with Tolman. Um, He only managed to qualify, uh, I think it was once that year, uh, with the season's finale at Las Vegas. And he had a a dismal 82 and 83 season uh, with Tolman. But he bounced back and he scored points in the final four rounds of the 83 season. And uh, that brought him to the attention of the works Renault team because of Alan Prost left the Renault team at the end of 1983 to join McLaren, which is where I worked with him alongside Nicky Lauder And Derek filled that seat at Renault.
0: It could have been so very different, couldn't it? Because Frank Williams came calling, but shockingly, and I'm sure he regrets it now, he turned Frank Williams down for the drive at Williams and of course mm. that was then later offered to Nigel Mansell who with the red 5 mm. adorned proudly mm. on the nose cone went and won the world championship.
1: It was the Renault F1 team, you know I remember it very well in that early part of the 80s 84 85. I mean it was it was incredibly well funded. It had some superstar engineers and of course had a very powerful turbocharged engine. But it never quite came together, and he he was paired up with Patrick Tombe. The turning point in Warwick's career was that decision, as you rightfully say, to stay at Renault in eighty five. Eighty five was a very strong season for Williams and for Nigel Mansell, but Renault announced their decision to withdraw at the end of that year. Um, there was also another interesting element as well, of course, and Ayrton Senna sort of refused to let Warwick join him as teammate at Lotus. Ayrton could be very strong in that sense, and we've talked about that a lot in the past. But he wanted that role as an absolutely undisputed number one. And he could see the strengths that Derek had in terms of being an out-and-out racer. And there was just no way he was prepared to accept him at Lotus. So poor old Derek was left without a team for that season, and uh, for the 86 season, and took up um, what was then an offer from Tom Walkinshaw uh, to go and join the TWR Jaguar squad.
0: He was also one of the last of the breed to race across multiple disciplines all at the same time, wasn't he? This was something that was very Mm. common in the early days of the 50s and 60s. And you'd have even people like John Surtees who would race between motorbikes and cars. But then Mm. as the 80s and 90s era of motorsport came, people very much focused on whether they were a Formula One driver or a sports car driver. But Derek Warwick managed to juggle both at the same time.
1: He did. And I think that if you look back at those early days when he was racing in super stocks and then, you know, F3000 and all the other things, British Formula 3, all the things that he danced with, he was just one of those very natural guys who was more than happy to get in anything that was competitive and race it hard. It was interesting also that if you go back, sadly, Elio De Angelis, who'd been a Lotus driver, went to drive for Bernie Eccleston's Brabham team in that very unconventional Brabham that called Murray design that had really no engine cover at all, it's flat back. And Elio died in a tragic testing accident at the circuit at Paul Ricard. And there's often been, been rumors, you know, which I'd heard in the past, that Bernie had, had invited Warwick to take De Angelus's place, place, um, who's the only, at that time, driver who was actually available of a suitable caliber. But Warwick himself explained, Derek explained um, to people after that, when that rumour is going round, he actually said, I actually got a phone call from Bernie, who said that he really appreciated the fact that I wasn't, I didn't call him five minutes after Elio had died. And would I like to drive for him? But um, there's no Grand Prix clash with sports car commitments. Um, Derek was able to race as you quietly say, in a number of world championships, and he was one of the few people to do that in that era.
0: What was it that Tom Walkinshaw saw in Derek Warwick then, and how did that relationship come about?
1: You know, Tom was a great talent spotter, and we've talked so much on the podcast about Tom and his ability to pick, you know, real racers. I think Derek was a hard racer. He took no prisoners at all, and Tom was very much the same. And I think he admired that in people. And when he saw that and realised that, you know, Derek had already had great experience and had won championships and, you know, world championships in stocks and then moved up through, he just saw him as a no-holds-barred, committed racer. And Tom loved people like that. And it was a natural progression to get him into into one of his sports cars.
0: Well, of course, he was part of the team in 1986, as they... Uh, campaigned the six-cylinder cars the XJR6 mm. alongside Eddie Cheever and Schlesser mm. as well Jean-Louis mm. Schleser um, mm. then he returned much later on of course when the V12s arrived in the 90s and was part of mm. the Andy Wallace John Nielsen pairing um, of mm. the uh, 1991 TWR team which you must have fond memories of.
1: I do indeed, but in between that, we must never forget that he went to race alongside Arrows with uh, Eddie Cheever. Jackie Oliver at that time was team principal of Arrows, and they had a very wealthy uh, sponsor, a guy by the name of John Schmidt, who ran a company in America called USF&G. And the USF&G Cream Arrows, with Barclays Cigarette Sponsorship, were were a mid-to-front-running field with Eddie Cheever in the championship they they used the BMW engine the very powerful engine which was developed by uh, the engine guru Heini Marder. Marder's engines were extremely powerful but they they didn't have great reliability but you know in those days those engines were producing six hundred and fifty horsepower they were known as Megatron after also one of Schmidt's companies and uh, therefore you know he he fought and was a regular contender in Formula One for that period um it wasn't really until he had, you know, bad luck in a number of Formula One races, where you know he was leading a race when the engine blew. Um, Derek was lapping much quicker when he was racing, you know, up against Senna at one point, and the engine failed just before the end. And I think, therefore, really, you know, he made some other moves. He went to Lotus. He drove the car with a Lamborghini engine. But really, what was clear to him there, after he witnessed Martin Donnelly's enormously. Uh, that damaging accident at the Spanish Grand Prix in 1990, it left Derek thinking really what he wanted to do next, and that was really when he made that transition with Tom, and did some fantastic racing for the team. And of course, in 1992, he became the World Sports Car Drivers Champion, and also the um, you know the driving force behind Tom's World Championship Sports Cars wins in '92.
0: Mm, absolutely of course he was driving alongside another plucky brit mark blundell in that car Mm. that year and an Mm. up-and-coming guy yannick dalmas who would later go on to great things at le mans uh, towards the late Mm. 90s and who actually drives the safety car at le mans these days of course later on he ended up racing for the team that he's based at the Le Mans circuit uh, Courage and he re- actually raced alongside another TWR uh, veteran Jan Lammers there didn't he
1: yeah absolutely and in fact you know I even missed out a bit about him he, he returned to footwork at one point you know and tried in 1993 uh, to race again in Formula One but he ended his career with a, uh, in Grand Prix with a total of 71 Grand Prix points and being a very pragmatic individual his focus moved on to the next stages, as you say. You know, he, As I said earlier, he won the World Sports Car Championship in '92. He was part of the Peugeot team, which was victorious in the 24 hours of Le Mans race that year. And he drove sports cars for Tom, as we've just said. But where he really then moved on was he also raced in the British Touring Car Championship in the super touring era, where he drove an Alfa Romeo successfully and had some great battles there. And then, of course, he, he actually got involved in team ownership. He teamed up with Roland Dane, and with Ian Harrison, with the formation of Triple Eight Engineering, uh, which had so much success latterly with the Vauxhalls. And in fact, as, you know, though Derek and I have always had respect for each other, when I was administering the Touring Car Championship, we did clash swords a number of times. And Derek was not a man to clash swords with lightly, because he has always had extremely, you know, well-held views. He's had this great career. And of course, then, as you rightfully say, he went on to become president of the BRDC uh, as well. So A remarkable career in motor racing and somebody who really demands great respect. And this is why I think he's also been chosen on occasions as a steward at Grand Prix. He's stewarded at the Hungarian Spanish Grand Prix and also the Turkish Grand Prix. So, yeah, one of the greats and um, certainly somebody who deserves the respect that everybody in the paddock holds for him.
0: I have great memories, of course, of those massive late 90s battles uh, with him and John Cleland driving those Vauxhall Vectras, a car that you (laughs) saw reps driving on the road every single day. But on a Sunday, they hit the circuits of Britain and absolutely tore strips out of everything else. It was fantastic to watch British touring cars in the late 90s. It was something of a a heyday for that sport, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was very much, and it was what tempted Williams uh, back in my era at Williams. We formed Williams Touring Car Engineering. and We had the likes of Will Hoy, Jason Plato, Alan Menu in, in the Nest Cafe sponsored Renault Lagunas. And Super Touring at that time in the UK, Alan Goward brought it up to an incredible level. But the budgets were what really killed it. It was approaching 9, 10 million pounds a year to run a team in Super Touring. But you're right, these battles with John Cleland were, were legendary. And Cleland was yet yeah, another man on track not to be messed with. So uh, it provided some fantastic entertainment, which thankfully is still on YouTube for us to enjoy today.
0: Uh, A guy very much involved in motorsports still, as you said, Richard, lives on the Isle of Jersey. And if you're on Jersey and you're listening to this podcast and you fancy buying a Honda, not sure why you would, but just in case, you can go and see Derek Warwick. That's what he sells on the Isle of Jersey. Uh, But a very, very worthy inductee into the Hall of Fame and someone who's very much pivotal still. the world of motorsport Derek Warwick You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Podcast To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region visit jec.org.uk On this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're talking about the build of a car. It's a little while since we've done this, so I'm very excited. Now, I moved house recently, and amongst all of the boxes that I uncovered as I've been moving into the new place was my box of memorabilia from various Jaguar launches, and in particular, a poster that I collected way back in the 90s of a Jaguar concept car, the XK180, photographed on the pit straight at Silverstone with a Jaguar D-Type behind it. I'd kind of forgotten how beautiful this concept car was. They cost a million quid each to build when Special Vehicle Operations put them together for the Paris Motor Show in 1998. It had the four litre V8 supercharged engine in it, but it was actually produced to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the XK engine. Keith Hellfit designed it. He was the man, of course, that designed the Aston Martin DB7. And he kept the d types iconic shape firmly in mind it's an inspirational concept car and a concept car you can imagine enthusiasts like us wanting to recreate well one such person has done just that and we're talking to him now neil mugglestone welcome to the podcast
2: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: (laughs) Uh, So I've been very excited to talk to you about this car because it is one of the dream Jaguars. uh, One of the dream Jaguars that I will never, ever be able to own, but somehow you've managed it. Um, Take us back to when you first saw the car, because probably like all of us, you were watching the footage from the Paris Motor Show or you saw it at Earl's Court later that year and you were just blown away by it. What's your memories of when the XK180 was launched?
2: exactly as you say i mean it was uh, i suppose in some ways it must have been uh, you know you, you you imagine the days if you'd if you'd seen the um the e-type appear in the 1960s on the streets along with the other stuff that was around in the 60s it, it would have just blown you away with the design and the beauty of it and for me the 180 was you know that all again really um and yeah it was it, it it was one of those things, I mean, I then saw it, of course, in the JEC magazine, January 2008, I think it was, um, where um, you know there was the possibility then to actually, I think, I think the line was, you know, you can never buy one of these, but you can build your own.
0: Build your own, you have managed to do, and we'll go through the build process with you in just a minute. But, um, I mean, I suppose, ultimately, it was leading towards what would become the F-type to most consumers later on down the line. But it sort of came for Jaguar, a period when there hadn't been much activity, had there? Of course, they'd been bought by Ford some years beforehand. They'd been plodding along with the XJ, of course, the the, the V8-engined XJ had come along, and that had taken the world by storm by claiming it being the fastest production saloon car at the time. But apart from that relative excitement, not much had happened. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, bang, this came. And it was the start of the new era for Jaguar in many ways because all sorts of new models followed it. Did it feel like that to you at the time, that Jaguar was starting to change and do something new?
2: Yes, I mean, it. it's... um it, that's the beauty of Jaguar's design. I mean, their in-house stuff. Well, I, th- I think I think when they're let loose to actually go and. Um Almost given a blank canvas, the stuff they produce is fantastic, and that's that's what we you know love about Jaguar and have seen so much in the past, and to see it happen again, as you say, was really exciting.
0: I understand this began with a holiday to France that ended up having something of an ulterior motive. Is that right?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's sort of how uh, my holidays often end up. I always do something <laughs> with another purpose attached somewhere down the line. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, going back to the Jag Enthusiast magazine in January. Paul Bannum, um, who's done many um, body alterations to the XJS over the years in, in fiberglass body moldings, he'd um, produced a beautiful replica body of the 180, um, which is which is what excited me because all of a sudden there was a possibility of building one. So I'd arranged to. Um, uh, Paul Bannham's down in uh, near Dover, um, so we'd we'd gone for a week's holiday to France, and um, the arrangement was on the way back that I'd call in and see him and see the finished article, which we did, and along with the family and everything else. And um, it was, I think, it was um, April two thousand and eight. I went back and and picked up all my body from him, so I was quite quick at making the decision and and getting the getting the body bought.
0: When you say buying the body, how did it come to you? As were these pre molded panels that then had to be constructed was it an entire shell and and what was it made of
2: right the um the the body is effectively it's um, a set of five panels so the the front end is very much like an e-type it's a complete bonnet come wings that hinges at the front like the e-type would um a rear tub two doors and a boot lid um very good quality fiberglass panels very strong i mean when they when they're nicely painted it's very difficult to tell it from as you walk past from a you know a, a metal bodied car to be honest um so yeah i mean the the, the body is beautiful but it is that that is exactly what it is it is just a set of panels i mean from there on every xk 180 replica that's ever made will be completely unique because everybody has their own idea how they want to do it there are no plans there are no instructions you you set to you know with your donor car and and start
0: so you now have all this pile of parts that you've brought up from Dover and you are now looking at it thinking what next so where where was the next step
2: the next step was to find a donor car Um, I mean you can you can build these on either XJS or XK8 floor pan either either is perfectly suitable Now, I mean, bearing in mind that I started this over 10 years ago, XJS uh, was very affordable as a donor car at the time. In fact, I went out and bought a pair of 3.6-litre XJS's, around about 1989, 1990 models, Um, picked the best car out of the pair, and um, then, uh, you know, you you start and strip the car down. You don't want any of the original body. You, You fetch everything off apart from the floor pan um you know the, the the structural stuff that the car sits on, so it, it it is still a rolling driving bare floor pan really, and then you start and rebody
0: and I like the fact that the two prototypes that Jaguar built had their current four liter v8 in them at the time, didn't they but you've got the straight six is that right
2: yeah I mean obviously the car the the xjs came with a three point six liter straight six in on an auto box um I initially mocked the body up with that power plant in. Um, but Then one Christmas before I started to get into too much detail of, of the body and finishing it, I thought, I, I really want a better engine than this long term. So I stopped the project, took the front off the car again, uh, bought a, a an X300 uh, XJR with the 4-litre straight-six supercharger in it, um, and spent a whole Christmas removing the engine out of there along with the wiring loom and the immobiliser stuff. That was the problem was was to create make that engine run outside of the three hundred because of, you know, immobilizers and chipped keys and everything else. But that's that that took one Christmas week. We got that out, um, and and transplanted into the one hundred eighty so and I then put that to the five speed Getrag manual gearbox. So we ended up with three hundred horsepower, supercharged straight six through a manual box which was much more of a drive, a driver's car at the end of the day, which is how the 180 wanted to end up.
0: Absolutely. Well, you can understand why Jaguar used the V8 at the time. That was the engine they were pushing for the XK8 and, of course, their current XJ6. But to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the XK engine, which, of course, that car was supposed to be for there's just something really nice about it being a straight six and with that supercharger mm. on what a superb engine that is it kind of makes yeah. the story complete doesn't it
2: yeah yeah i mean it's i've, I've always loved that um I mean, I mean that engine is is very much xk derived it's physically it's you know it's built exactly the same and uh would you say with the supercharger on there i mean all i hear when i drive it because of the slats in the bonnet is you, you just get the supercharger whine coming straight at you all the time it's just um, it just makes you want to drive it, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I uh, don't blame you with a manual box as well. Uh, I have yeah. driven one XJR manual car and it is it is totally different beast, it really is. You don't feel like you're in the same car at all. So to put mm. that in such a lightweight version of the XK180 and, and the fact that you've got no wet weather gear and the, you know everything's open and your senses are being assaulted by all this stuff, it must be a phenomenal drive. It must feel like a real event every time you take it out of the garage.
2: It, it does. Uh, I mean, that's, that was one reason I want, why I wanted to do the Blight and track day because, I mean, to actually take a car like that somewhere where you can... Drive it and push it to its limits, and see how good it is. Now you've built one, because that was that was always my question. You know, will I get it out there and it would be a right handful? But it, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. A safe place to actually, you know, explore and, and open it up and just see what it would do. But yeah, she's it's very good. I still haven't got a weight off it yet. I must take it to a bridge But I mean, imagine it's probably somewhere sort of fourteen, fifteen hundred kilos. I would think, all up with three hundred horsepower. So it's it's yeah it, it's very responsive and lively but great fun to drive
0: well I know that as soon as you start putting big engines and tuning engines and all of that kind of stuff it's like a domino effect isn't it you have to then do suspension and brake so what, yeah. what were the changes you had to effect there as well
2: yeah that that Fortunately, I managed to get most of that. I mean, obviously, it was uh, the beginning of lockdown when when I actually finished this car, ready for my daughter's wedding. That, there was there were two pushes, really. I'd got the workshop to myself for eight weeks for a start because the, the lads had been furloughed. So that was a great opportunity to get it finished and get it painted. Um, and it gave me time to go out and you know play with it on the road. And the first thing I had to do was go back to the drawing board with suspension because, as you say, the weight had changed so much in the car. Um, The rear suspension, rather than having the conventional four shock absorbers and springs on the back, um, I've gone down to two um, SPACs adjustable shock absorbers with uh, 500-pound springs either side. So I've got ride height adjustable as well as control. Um, That that managed the back end beautifully. Um, The front end I had to redo as as well. I've had to... um, I'm running standard... um, 3.6 xjs coil springs but but i've had to make the lower pans adjustable so i've got the full travel and and the ride of the correct spring but i can lower the pans down in order to get the body height correct so the car sits well um having done that it transformed it all of a sudden you could drive it and yeah whereas before it was it was just no good
0: how easy were the body parts to put onto the car then presumably there's quite a lot of fabrication work still required you might have a molded panel here but was there a lot of fettling and and how do those panels actually attach to that sort of rolling chassis if you like
2: Mm, yeah as I say it's uh, it's an interesting project that you've just got to get your head around every single piece as you go um Yes, there is a fair bit of fabrication. I mean, the rear tub, for example, is a complete um, tub that slides on the back of the car, but then it has to sit on something. So I created in the back boot area, if you can imagine, um, a tubular space frame that supports the body. So so, so the body is now carried on this tubular space frame, which is then welded back to the floor pan um uh the front end is not so bad because it's it's a case of creating uh like i like i said like the e type um a tube across the front that would that acts as a hinge point um and then i've gone i've used the original xk xjs bonnet catch mechanism um to fasten the bonnet down um so all of but but everything is is you 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 sit there with the panel and think well you know what's the best way to fasten this one and it's as simple as that
0: really and presumably you had to be very very sure of your underpinnings before you started putting those panels on because xjs is blessed and we love them but goodness me do they rot sometimes mm.
2: yeah i was fortunate in buying the two at the time and and carefully going through and checking i mean um the, the one I, I used in the end the floor pans everything in the car is original um and, and the floor pans were very very good i mean The the one bit we've missed out, of course, in this build is um, that the body uh, determines is um, the body for an XK180 is actually six inches shorter than the standard floor pan of an XJS or an XK8. So at the point of starting to put the body on, you actually cut through the car behind the driver and passenger seat, um, take six inches out of the floor pan, pop it back together again and reconstruct the, the floor pan before you put the body on so you end up with a, with a, an xjs that's six inches shorter in the wheelbase which actually transforms the handling of it but that gives you the opportunity to while the, while the car's in two halves to um i put six inch steel tubes in each sill either side so the car actually telescopics back together on on six inch steel tubes down the sills um so I mean that you've, you've got a very strong sill structure then to work to, that's all welded in and, and plated um, so the sills aren't too much of a concern on the car because you're redoing that anyway but the floor pan was excellent and obviously by the time we'd tubed it and um, strengthened it all up, it makes a very rigid floor.
0: I bet that was a nervous moment when those two halves came apart, wasn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, well it, you've, you've either broke it and it's going down the scrappy hard or it's actually going to work isn't it?
0: <laughs> it always amazes me, you know, that all of these amazing bits of fabrication and and rebuild work happen pretty much in garages and workshops all up and down the country. And, uh, you know, obviously your, your business is dealing with Jaguars. You're an independent Jaguar specialist. So I suppose you have slightly more facilities than most of us in our single garages on housing estates, but did you find it a challenge doing it in the workshop? Was it difficult to sort of find space to move all these things about?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's why it's taken so long to be perfectly honest. Um, as as you know as with all of us we're all busy we all have busy lives and um yeah i mean i started with great gusto got it all ripped apart and, and and into it but then it did sit in the back in the back corner of the garage uh for quite a while once the body was on because i then needed the whole garage back to myself to to set to and uh, there was days and days um, on the body work to get the body, you know, to a right shape and condition before, you know, painting was even considered. And, and I just needed the space and time to be left alone to do it. And, you know, yeah, with 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 a busy working week, I just wasn't finding it in the normal, normal um, way of life. But yeah covid created a gap which is a blessing in disguise if you can put it that way
0: mm. well it's a story we've heard a lot on this podcast over the past year we started this very series uh, just after the first lockdown began and the number of stories of cars that have risen from the ashes as a result of people being at home and having a bit more time it's, it's yeah. been brilliant actually and uh, you know hopefully that will translate into us all being able to get out and enjoy them more once this is over
2: Absolutely, yeah. It's time to do that now.
0: Once the car has taken shape, there's those little details. And one of those little details that I remember very much from the Paris Motor Show launch... Was the interior? It was stunning, wasn't it? And it did sort of mm. mix the modern with the heritage of the D-type. And I remembered that beautiful metal dashboard that it had. How did you go about recreating all of that?
2: Once again, every one of these that's ever built by anybody will be unique. And I and I did take my own take on on my interior. Because I mean, obviously, when I went to see the one that Paul had, had built in the first place, he'd done a, a full replica copy of the one at the Paris Motor Show, so it had got. Four-point harnesses, uh, race bucket seats. Um, It it was very much a track car. Um, I wanted mine to. I wanted to be able to use it. I wanted to go out for uh, Jag weekends away to a hotel, etc. So um, I've the interior is is, is a similar mix. It's it's classic, modern, uh, but I went for XK8 seats, retrimmed XK8 centre console. So I've got very comfortable Jaguar plush interior. But then I've also got um, the aluminium trim dash, which, which actually uh, Paul created a fibreglass moulding for, so you can then cut that out and, and finish it how you like. So I've got the same same dash, uh, obviously manual gearbox. It's, it's, it's very much, you look in it and it looks gorgeous and lush Jaguar, but at the same time it's got wooden rim steering wheel, it's got uh, 1990s dials. It, it's a real sort of modern retro um, look, really, the interior is.
0: And you haven't gone for the same colour either as the prototypes, have you? You've gone for sort of a dark gunmetal grey. I think I'd describe it as.
2: Yes, it's it's actually um, it's about a, what is it 2007 something like that. Uh, the XKR uh, metallic slate grey. Um, I just love the colour, and I thought the car would look well in it. And once again. Because it's a unique car, and, and you're putting your own um, your own take on it. Um, I, I just I just wanted to do something different rather than going down the route of being exactly the same colour. But it does stand well in that colour, and the Paris alloy wheels, of course, they're a sort of almost a a goldy colour. It just stands out really well, along with the cream leather
0: i love the fact that uh, if you look at the uh, build pictures of the car on your website there's a picture of a, a dewalt reciprocal saw and the bonnet louvers <laughs> i'm oh presuming gosh, that, that was it wasn't a- as simple as that just cutting them out
2: so <laughs> well, i think out of the whole build of the car that was probably my ne- most nervous day <laughs> and moment um I mean the bonnet. I mean the bonnet was the last panel I did. I did, and the rest. Of it, I mean, I, I did, I did, you know, a section at a time, finished, painted, back on the car, so nothing got marked or scratched. And then the bonnet was the last one to do. But yeah, I, I kept looking at those louvers, deciding how to cut them out. Because the problem is, it's it's the one part of the car everybody's going to walk up to and look at. And if the louvers are a mess or they're not straight, it's going to ruin it. Um, but yeah, I. have I borrowed the um, the uh, DeWalt multi-cutter, which is a tool that um, uh, my son-in-law, electrician, uses for cutting out plasterboard for switch boxes and all sorts. And just the fine nature of the teeth on the blade and the way that it reciprocates so controlled, I was able to just drop it in and cut perfectly straight slots. But it took me a day and a half to cut all the bonnet slots out and then you know just by hand sand them perfectly back to shape and get
0: them out onto them uh, i presume the other quite scary bit of the build as well was the big perspex wraparound screen that i remember so well from the original car
2: yeah yeah i mean uh, once again um, you know those parts are all of all available paul's had a, a, a perspex molding company create them so um, you 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 know you buy the screen and and the side screens that just go on the top of the doors and the headlamp covers. It all comes you know it's all available to get with along with the body. But once again fitting that it, it's it, it comes oversized. Um, it's all got to be trimmed and cut to the um, corner pillars, and you've got to decide how you're going to fasten it. And uh, so yeah, you you just. Uh, very fine blade in a jigsaw, lots of water, and gently cut away at this screen, hoping you don't crack it.
0: Mm. Yeah, it looks fantastic, though, once it's on, and it really does transform the look and the shape. It almost looks like the screen's been put there by the wind flowing over the car. It's what I always loved about that design. Um, and I have to ask you, behind the seats, you've got these sort of Jaguar D-type-inspired mouldings that come from behind the headrests and run down the the back of the yeah. car there and it looks like that's a removable panel is there a roof under there or did you stick to the no wet weather gear allowed rule
2: <laughs> no no it's very it's very much a motorbike i'm afraid you 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 look at the weather forecast before you go no i mean it, it i've i've hinged that um panel uh, just just behind the the um, the rollover bar there um so it, so it does hinge up fully as a proper boot lid so in the back there, I've, I've got a full-size XJS boot, which is great. I mean, you can put anything in there.
0: Great to hear that you are going to use it and get out and about to JC events and, and enjoy the car now.
2: Well, that's the plan. I have bought a very good quality full car cover, which so, I mean, if we're away over an evening, you just pop the car cover on, fasten it down. I mean, it is waterproof. it doesn't take any harm, then it can sit out, so it's
0: fine. Was it easy to get on the road once you'd completed it then? Because presumably it then had to be tested and registered, did it?
2: No, I mean the beauty of this car, which is one reason why why I was so keen to get started with it, is that um, it is, to all intents and purposes, when you put it up on an MOT ramp, it is a full XJS underneath. Um, you you haven't altered. Um, you 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 run in standard uh, braking, uh, suspension, power units the same. All these things that you can alter. I know I've altered the engine, but it's still a six cylinder power unit in their Jaguar produced. Um, so, from an MOT guy's point of view, it is it, testing an XJS. And the good thing about the logbook on those, uh, the V five on those cars, is all XJS uh, V fives state um, body type sports coupe, and that's that's what it's always said, which is exactly what the body type is. Um, so, yeah, it, it really isn't a problem. It 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 stays on the logbook, you know, as a as um, an XJS sports coupe.
0: So, Neil, if I told you, and I haven't, but if I told you that uh, I've got all the body parts in my garage here and I'm just about to start my own one, what's the top tip that you would give me? What was the big mistake that you learned from or what should I really be careful of if I'm following you down the same path?
2: In hindsight, if I did it again, um, the XJS is a fantastic car and I am really pleased with the way it's turned out. But in hindsight, probably now, 10 years on, um where where the xk8 is actually more affordable um i, I may well if i if i built another one I was, or, or you were building one i would say possibly look at the xk8 as in the v8 you know xkr version so you've got you would then end up with the car with the designed engine that jaguar put in as well um it's it's just another way of doing it but yeah maybe maybe use that instead of the xjs but after the Blight and Track date, I've got to say, I'm very impressed with the way that XJS went around there.
0: Would you do another one?
2: If I did another one, the, the problem is, if I did another one, I'd, I'd do it differently because I've learned so much from doing this one. I probably would, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I love this one so much. It is so unique. I mean, if, if I was to sell this, that would be the only reason I might think about doing another one, but I've no intention of selling it, to be honest. It's one of those things you build to keep.
0: I think the fact that you've got that xk derived six cylinder in yours rather than the v8 that jaguar put in the two concept cars they built i think for me that completes the story a little bit more Mm. neatly than perhaps theirs did at the time and i think that's uh, one of the great things about your car the fact that it's got a manual gearbox as well just like the d-type would have done i think says it all for me so uh it's great to see it out and about It was great to see it at blighton and we hope to see you and the car at many more Jaguar enthusiast club events in the coming years uh go and enjoy it now neil we'll let you go and have a blast
2: yeah I took it down with rain today so i don't think it'll be coming out today <laughs> but never mind
0: <laughs> neil thanks very much okay no problem You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary, sharing the knowledge, drama, and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship.
3: So following on from last week's episode really, we've just continued um, preparation on both mine and Matthew's xr 6s really. So um, as we discussed in last um week's podcast, we we talked about the issue that we found on the car. So um, we've had the car back up on the dyno and we have confirmed that it was obviously the temperature um, related um, sensor that was causing all the issues, which simple, um, easily fixable, but just hugely frustrating um, on our behalf. these parameters are all there for for safety and it it didn't damage the engine essentially. So um, it it applied those corrections as it needed from the data that it was receiving. So we've proven that, um, we're happy with that. So we've been going back through the car just to make sure nothing else is is untoward. We've got plenty of time to to get anything rectified before Castle Coombe. So um, we've remade the exhaust, so we've made two rear silencers. um, So we're happy with all of that, that's rectified that issue and we've gone back through the car and and to be honest with you obviously we put very little wear on the car but other than um, changing around the tires um, and changing fluids that is all we're going to need to do before Castle Coon which is which is great news Um, In Matthew's corner there's a there's a huge amount of work to do unfortunately. Um, Obviously as we've discussed before it has sustained quite a large fire so we've been in the process of of uh, rewiring the car and and replacing all the plastic components. So we got to a point last week where, uh, sorry two weeks ago, where we couldn't go any further because we've been waiting on components. Now um, we have actually finally got those arriving this week um, with kind of covid and there's been a huge delays with a lot of electrical components so this has seen a bit of a, a bit of a brunt with that unfortunately but we've been able to get to a point um, as far as we can get without going any further so we've actually got the engine loom left to, to make now we've got all the parts so we're gonna we're gonna crack on with that but i have actually spoken with matthew and we've decided that we're actually going to to not prepare the car ready for the race, Um, Matthew's going to race the XJ40 again. Um, Not that the car's not going to be ready in time but we're not going to have any time to test the car so um, with so much work being undertaken we just didn't want to risk not testing the car before a race day really so um, obviously had an absolute cracking result of that at Donington. so yeah we're gonna we're gonna get it prepared and get it ready and then we've got a test day up at donnington with the car um a week later so that's the plan really is to is to get it ready for that we've got a day to test it and make sure there's no little uh, niggles anywhere and he'll be out at the next round racing that car but it's going to be in the XJ40 for castle Coupe. lots to do um and it's coming around pretty quickly so um we'll update you next week with how we get on at the track day um, that is on Tuesday I believe um, and yeah we'll, we'll keep you posted
0: that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.